a Bible with you this morning. Uh, the section we are in is going to be on 866 in the Pew Bibles. And we are finishing chapter 12 this morning. It's taken quite a few weeks. It's a long chapter, 50 verses. But what Matthew's been showing us is um, the way people are interacting with Jesus. There's some, there's some Pharisees, just the religious leaders of the nation, and they kind of hate Jesus. They've decided they want to kill him because he's a threat to their power. He's a threat to their leadership. And then there's the crowds. The crowds are kind of on the outside. They're benefiting from Jesus' teaching. They're benefiting from Jesus' miracles, but they're kind of not really sure about him. And then there's the disciples, those that have kind of connected themselves to Jesus, that have said, yes, I am yours. I want to follow you. And so we've been seeing little bits and pieces of how these different groups are interacting with Jesus. And Jesus is on the tail end of a pretty heavy rebuke of the Pharisees because a few weeks ago, if you were here, they called him um, a, a servant of the devil. They said he was doing miraculous works because of the power of demons. And so he's kind of in this process of rebuking them for um, rejecting him. And before we get into the text this morning, um, I was thinking a little bit this week and actually talking with my nephew. And we were talking about how a lot of times we hear that, we hear about the good old days. If you're, if you're younger, maybe you, you don't want to hear about the good old days. Like, oh man, grandpa, stop talking about the good old, you know, whatever. But we hear a lot about how, you know, things are really bad right now. And they were so much better back then. And I remember growing up uh, as, as a young person, just learning that, you know, way back in the day, wherever that was, maybe it was the 1950s, maybe it was the 1860s, maybe it was 1776, I don't know. But it was awesome back then. Everybody loved Jesus. Everybody was a Christian. There was no such thing as sin. And it's just tanked ever since. And then sometimes it feels that way. Like, what is going on in the world right now? But the reality is, if you look carefully back at history, it didn't start at this, like, American utopia and just fall. What tends to happen is, is the devotion of people, the fire in the church just kind of does this. It kind of just goes in waves. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. The Holy Spirit does a, an amazing work. He, he breathes life into a generation of people and they get excited about God and they share their faith and they turn their worlds upside down. And it's awesome. And then they have kids. And those kids grow up in that environment and, and they receive what's called an assumed faith. They didn't have that amazing experience with God. They just kind of grew up hearing about it from their parents. And then those kids grow up and have kids, and chances are they don't really pass much on to that third generation. And so it doesn't really have that connection to God. And this is what we see in American history. We see the first great awakening happen, and, and people are, are just are, are like randomly coming to faith in Christ in the middle of their fields. And uh, just amazing works of God are happening in the 1700s. And then a couple generations ago, uh, later, that just kind of slowly fizzles out and America is, is pretty, a pretty rough place. And then the second Great Awakening happens. And then that slowly fizzles out over a couple generations. And 
we see this cycle throughout our country where God moves and, and people are, are just changed. But then it doesn't get passed along and it fades. And then people, strangely, are ripe for God to move again. Jesus is exhorting the crowds. that He's already pretty much given up on the Pharisees, right? He's decided that the Pharisees have turned a corner that there's no coming back from. They have, they have seen him for who he is and they've rejected him. Um, but there are crowds. There are people that are on the fence. These are, these are God's people, the people of Israel. They've grown up knowing the scriptures, wanting to see the coming of the Messiah. And, and today, Jesus is going to push on them and I think he's going to push on us to be active in our faith. See, following, we talk about following Jesus. That's what a, a disciple, a learner, someone who a rabbi would come along and say, follow me. And the, and the man or woman would drop everything and they would move. They would go. They would be like the teacher. And so following Jesus is an activity. It is, it's active if you're a football player, you play football. If you're a computer programmer, you program computers. If you are a home builder, you build homes. There is not a situation where you say, I am a home builder. Well, what do you build? I don't build anything. Well, you can't be a home builder if you, if you don't build anything. Like, that's it's not a thing. You can't call yourself that if you're not doing that. And so, it's in the same way, following Jesus, you can't be a follower of Jesus if you're not actually following Jesus. And we talk a lot about this in Scripture, there's a lot of metaphors for this. We talk about being in bondage to sin and being given freedom. Well, what's a prisoner do when he's given freedom? He goes out. He's given access to things that he could not do as a prisoner. And he begins to do them as a free man. We go from death to life. That's another metaphor that the Bible uses. A dead person doesn't do anything. A living person is active. And we have to see... Our salvation, if we, if we call ourselves Christians, we have to see it as more than a point in time. Sometimes maybe you have a story where, where you were at a, a service or a meeting of some kind and they said, you know, raise your hand if you want to follow Jesus or come down front or, or however it went and, and you have a date on the calendar. This is when I became a Christian and that's awesome. But that can't be the only reference point for your relationship with God. Following Jesus is a way of life and and Jesus is going to give us a warning, and then he's going to give us an invitation this morning. So look at verse 43. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest, but it doesn't find any. And then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house vacant, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. And as a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. That's how it will also be with this evil generation. So that's a weird story, right? <laughs> like, what are you talking about, Jesus? It's really important for us to understand the context of Scripture when we read it. And if you've, if you've studied the Bible or, or been at church for a long time, you've, you've heard that term, context. It means you can't just grab a verse out of the Bible and stick it on a coffee mug and have it make sense. 
Like there's so many times that we do this. We have this nice little passage of scripture that we like, but it's completely divorced from everything that goes around it. We can't understand what Jesus is talking about outside of the conversation he's already having with the Pharisees. He's rebuking them for not following him, for seeing the evidence of the kingdom of God. He's the king and he's come right in their midst and they don't want it. And so what Jesus is not doing is he's not going from this discussion with the Pharisees to like, let's pause and talk about where demons like to live. Like, that's not the point of this passage. I mean, it's possible that we could find some truthful things about demons here, but Jesus isn't giving us a teaching on demons specifically. He's telling a story, he's telling a parable, and this parable has a point. He's warning against failing to take positive steps when you are given an opportunity. Because look at this, this person who is, is in bondage to a demon. Now, we've seen that the demons are real. Jesus has cast demons out. We still exist in a world that has evil spiritual powers in it that want to do people harm. So that's a reality. But in this hypothetical situation, Jesus says there is somebody that is in bondage to a demon, and for some reason, this demon is cast out. Maybe Jesus cast him out. Maybe some other person cast this demon out. And it goes out and wanders around, but it doesn't like it there. It doesn't like it out in the wilderness. And so it goes back to that person. He, the, the demon calls it my house, the heart of this person that it came from, and it finds the house vacant, swept, and put in order, empty, ready to re-inhabit. And so it finds seven of his friends, and he brings all eight of them in, and that man is in a worse position than he was before. And this is an example of, of bondage to something. This is an example of, of addiction, um, Jesus is using a spiritual power, but there are other things that we are, find ourselves addicted to. Maybe some of you have experience with drug addiction or alcohol addiction. Uh, maybe you've tried to quit smoking. If you're like uh, me and most of the young men in this room, pornography has been a problem for you. Maybe it's social media. Maybe you just can't get off your phone. Any chance you get, you pull it out and you have to surf, whatever. And it's possible to just go, you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just, whatever it is, I'm just going to stop. It's called cold turkey. But generally, that just doesn't work. Because what you need to do to beat an addiction is to replace that addiction with something else that's good for you. And this man gets freed from this bondage of this demon. And then what does he do? He doesn't do anything. He just leaves his heart the way it is. He doesn't take the opportunity to change his life now that he's been freed from this demon and it leaves him open for seven other spirits to come in. We just, we just finished selling our home and um, I remember the, the day before we signed papers, I went back there to just make sure we hadn't forgotten anything and and you open the door, and it's clean and nice, but there's, there's no life there. There's no toys on the floor. 
There's no food in the refrigerator. And there's no laundry to be folded. All the things that drive us crazy about keeping a house, like none of that's there. And it's kind of, it's kind of sad because it's not really a home anymore. It's just a vacant building. Nothing's going on. And this is the condition of this man's heart. Nothing is going on. And so eight demons come back and his situation is worse than before. And then Jesus says, that's how it will also be with this evil generation. These people that he has appeared to, he has shown himself their king. And what have they done? They haven't done anything. They didn't do anything about it. They have an opportunity to be free, to trust in their Messiah. And they just ignore it. And Jesus, he's, he's not very clear here, but later on in Matthew, he's going to say, like, the Romans are coming in about 35 years, and they're going to destroy your city. And so much harm is going to come to you. And it's a direct resolve of the fact that they just didn't do anything when they were given an opportunity. And I, I, was, I was thinking this week, like, I've always had this nagging thought. I've been a Christian for a long time. And I've had this thought, like, am I really very different than anyone else as an American? Like, do you, do you ever feel like, you know, what, what makes a Christian special? What, what makes a Christian different? Are we all just the same as everyone else in our culture? See, I grew up believing that, that if you were not a Christian, you were wretched and awful. Like your life was miserable, all of your relationships ended in failure, and you were broke, and all of these terrible things would happen to you. And, and I've, as I've grown, I've come to understand that that's not true. Like I know lots of Christians that are happily married and love their children and pay their taxes and, and are just good citizens. And so I wonder, like, if, if we're supposed to be the light of the world, if we're supposed to be this, the people of God that everyone's going to see and marvel at, how does that work exactly? See, Jesus has given us this huge opportunity. Do you want to be adopted into the family of God? Do you want your sins, the broken parts of you, to be covered by the blood of Christ? Do you want to be made right with God? Do you want to be given a mission and a future and a hope and a purpose? And we say, yes, I want that. And then what happens? Are we like the the man who says, yeah, I I want to be freed from this demon, and we're freed from the demon, and then we just don't do anything else. We're just done. It wouldn't be weird, like like the people that bought our house had a whole list of things they wanted us to fix before they moved in. And so they cared about the house, and so I I fixed them, and and they moved in. but, But what if they hadn't? What if they went to all the trouble of securing a loan and, and, and just going to the, a realtor and shopping for houses and finally buying one and then just forgot about it? Like, oh yeah, we have that house. We're not going to move in there. We're not going to do anything with it. Now, that's pretty weird. You would, 
that you would work for something like that, that you would seek something like that and never take advantage of it. And this is Jesus' call to these people is that like you have this opportunity to take advantage of the king. He's here. He's, he, I'm giving you myself, Jesus says. What are you going to do about it? And I think we should ask ourselves that same question. If, if we've been redeemed, if we've been saved, if we call ourselves followers of Christ, is that where it begins or is that where it ends? But then Jesus gives us an invitation. Look at verse 46. He says, when he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. I like that verse. It's like exactly the same as the first one. <laughs> he replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So a couple things that this little account tells us. One, that Mary wasn't a perpetual virgin. If you've, if you've experienced the teaching of the Catholic Church, one of the things that they have um, gone sideways on is this idea that, that Mary and Joseph didn't have other children. And we see one example of several in, this, in the Gospels where Jesus has brothers and sisters. His brothers are mentioned right here. And then another thing to notice is Mary and Jesus' brothers, they're outside the house. Now, this is a pretty normal thing. It's pretty weird for us. But back in the first century, and we see this several times in the Gospels, Jesus would go to a house. There would be guests. His disciples would be there, the host, the host's guests. They'd be having a discussion. And then all these other people would be crowding in and looking in the windows and, and listening like creepers. But that was, that was okay back then. And so there's this whole crowd outside the house listening to Jesus teach. And his mother and his brothers are outside the house. They're not sitting at Jesus' feet learning from him. They're part of the crowd. See, there's, there's not really any indication of, in the Gospels, that Jesus' mom and Jesus' family really believed in him during his ministry. Mary believed something. Mary was told that her son would be the Savior. But even at this point, she's a little bit confused about what that means. Jesus says this weird thing, like, who is my mother and who are my brothers? I mean, come on, Jesus, that's Bean. Like, they're, they're your family. We learn a little bit more about this situation from Mark. In Mark 3.21, we find out that Jesus' mother and Jesus' brothers, they think he's losing his mind. They think he's a little bit nuts. Because, see, they have the same expectations for the Messiah as everybody else, that the Messiah is going to come, the Savior is going to come, and he's going to kick out the Romans and be the king, and Mary's going to be the queen mother, and that's an awesome job. Whatever you do as the queen mother, it must be a good thing. And the brothers are going to get special prince roles, and it's all going to be awesome. And none of that's happening. Jesus is like this homeless teacher wandering around this lake saying weird things to people. And they're like, Jesus, are you okay? Do you need a vacation? You need to like settle down a little bit? And now, word's probably going around, you know, the Pharisees, they want to kill you. 
I'm, I'm worried about you, Jesus. This is, this is not going well for you. And so they want to see him, but they're outside. Mary, I think, I have to assume that Mary is genuinely concerned about her son. But Jesus is doing the will of the Father. And I have to, I have to think about all of the times in my life when I've felt strongly that God was leading me a certain direction. And you know who usually pushes back the hardest? My friends and my family, the people that love me. You know, you, you sure you want to do that? You sure God said you should do that? That seems a little uh, financially unwise. Like, it could be dangerous over in that country. Like, do you sure you want to go there? And it's, I mean, it's people that love you, but at the same time, it's interesting that, that we, get, we get really bent out of shape when, like, somebody that we love wants to follow Jesus to a place that might be a little scary. And so Jesus is doing things that they're not approving of, and so they want to talk to him about it. And Jesus says you know what, my, my spiritual family, those people that are trusting in my message, those people that are sitting at my feet, those people in this room that have decided to come near and hear, they're my true family. The ties that Jesus has to the men and women that are following him, that are loving God, are stronger than to his biological family. Because they're all in. They're committed. They are moving forward with him. And his family outside, they're just not. And I think that's true for all of us. As we follow Jesus, our spiritual family, the men and the women and the, the children that join us in our pursuit of Christ, those relationships should grow and strengthen. And ideally... Your biological family is part of that. But sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes those relationships get strained and even break because you've decided to follow Christ and, and they're not willing to go with you. But here's why I think that we're, we have an invitation here. Jesus' biological family had a default relationship with him. Like when you're born, you don't pick anybody that is in your house. Like you don't pick your parents. You don't pick your siblings. They're just there. That's, this is the relationship that has been established by life. And they were functioning with Jesus that way. Mom and your brothers, they're outside. They want to talk to you. They had a certain relationship with Jesus because of who they were. And often, I think we approach Jesus the same way. You know, I was born into a Christian family, so obviously me and Jesus are close. Or I'm an American. Me and Jesus are close. I, I attend this church. It's a good church, so me and Jesus were like this. 
or I'm a member here. A couple weeks ago, I filled out that membership paperwork, and I'm in. Or what about this one? I'm the pastor. It's my job to get up here and tell you about Jesus every week, so me and Jesus must be close. Like, these are all default relationships. They're just the way things are. And they don't necessarily mean that we are close to Jesus. We could be out in the crowd. Jesus' real family relationships were being forged by activity. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Just back to the If you're a football player, you have to play football. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have to be following Jesus. And this is what he says. Like, whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. My family are those that are walking the same path that I am. And so then what's the will of God? What's the will of my father? What's all the things we've been talking about in Matthew? Trust in Christ, repentance, admitting your sin and turning from it, discipleship, pursuing Christ. That's not a default relationship. You don't just show up that way. You don't just appear as, I'm a Christian now. It's a journey. It's a walk. And so, as we close out chapter 12, we're going to transition in chapter 13, and Matthew's going to share a whole bunch of parables, short stories that Jesus told about the kingdom of God, and they're super interesting. But today, as we close out chapter 12, the warning is, don't be the guy that receives the gift of freedom and doesn't do anything with it. And the invitation is, Don't just rest on some kind of default relationship. I said a prayer once when I was a kid. I got baptized when I was 20. Like those are all good things, but they can't be the source of your salvation. Your your walk with Christ has to be something that progresses day by day. Some of the, the guys we've been meeting together and we just went through a book called 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Life by Donald Whitney, and I think they're great. I'm going I'm to read them for you. Um, they're based on some sermons that Jonathan Edwards preached. He was a Puritan pastor way back in the day. But he, he writes, do you thirst for God? Like, can you honestly say that I want more of Christ? Number two is, are you governed increasingly by God's word? Do you, do you search the scriptures for how you're supposed to live your life? Or do you just rationalize away like, well, that doesn't really apply to me today. Number three, are you more loving? Sometimes it takes a lot of time, but over the years, have you seen like, I actually, I love people more than I used to. Are you more sensitive to God's presence? Do you recognize that God is speaking to you? Because he does. His Holy Spirit works in our hearts and he teaches us. Do you hear that voice? Number five, do you have a growing concern for the spiritual and temporal needs of others? When people are hurting, maybe you can't fix it, but do you at least care? 
You pray for people in need. Number six, do you delight in the bride of Christ or do you just put up with us? Number seven, are, you, are the spiritual disciplines increasingly important to you? Do you make time to pray? Do you make time to study? Do you, spend t- do you seek that out? One of, the, one of my role models in this is my wife. Like she fights for it. There are so many things in her world that want to rob her from it. There are two little ones running around here somewhere. And then the big one. But she pursues Jesus. I need to get away. I need to spend some time alone with the Bible and in prayer. I I need to find this because it's important. Is that, is that a reality for you? Number eight, do you still grieve over sin? Do things pop up in your life and you go, oh man, I screwed that up. I'm sorry. I didn't realize that was still in me. Forgive me, Jesus. Number nine, are you a quick forgiver? Because, you know, like we, we hurt each other all the time. Are we quick to forgive or do we hold a grudge? And number 10, do you yearn for the kingdom and to be with Jesus? Are you looking forward to a day when all the wrongs are going to be made right and when you will stand as part of Jesus' bride in the new kingdom? It's a good book. It digs into all those things quite a bit, but the point is, we can't just hold on to a moment in our past where we've said, yeah, this is when I became a Christian. That's awesome, but it has to move forward from that. It has to move day by day into a close walk with God. And Jesus warns the Jews, don't, don't waste this opportunity. You've been freed. Do something with it. And he invites his disciples in as his family, his brothers and sisters, And mother, he says. Mark Sayers is a pastor and um, philosopher who lives in Australia. He writes a lot about current events and um, revival. He's a historian. And um, he studies those those waves that I was talking about at the beginning, the, the, the great revivals, the great moves of the Spirit, and then the next generation that kind of forgets. And he writes that the the fact that things seem so low right now, if you're looking out in the world and think like, man, people don't love Christ. The, The morality of our society is just in the toilet. It's just a terrible place to be. The fact that things are so low is actually a gift. It's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to fan the church into a flame that catches the whole world on fire. And every time there's a revival, every time that the Spirit of God moves in a powerful way in a land, it doesn't start with 
the people out there. It starts with the people in here. And it's, it's you and I who decide, you know what, I'm going to get serious about following Christ. I'm going to take the opportunities that Jesus has given me, and I'm going to pursue him. I'm going to sit at his feet inside the house. I'm not going to be out on the periphery trying to knock or stick my head in through the window once in a while. I'm going to be in. I'm going to go after it. And then as God's Spirit renews God's people, it spills out of church buildings into a city and potentially thousands and thousands of people are saved. And Sayers writes and speaks a lot about this and and he thinks that we are on the verge of this in this country, in Britain, in Australia, that the situation is just ripe for God to do an amazing work. And I, I want to be a part of that. Do you guys want to be a part of that? Yeah. But it starts with us. It starts with us throwing aside the things that distract us and leaning in to following Christ. And so my encouragement this morning is that we would, we would do whatever that takes. And it's different for all of us. Some of us, we've got, we've got a besetting sin. We've got this thing that's a habit or an addiction or something that we can't seem to get rid of, and we need to get rid of it. We need to take radical steps to get rid of it. We need to talk to somebody about it. We need to... Um, Jesus says, if, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And that's an exaggeration. Don't do that. But take radical steps towards holiness. We need to love each other in ways that seem bizarre. We need to forgive each other over and over and over again. Jesus says, 70 times 7 a day. That's a lot. We need to have hearts that forgive. We need to pursue Christ through his word and through prayer, both on our own and gathered together. And when we do that work on our own hearts, on our own souls, it's going to spread. We will be people that the Spirit of God can use to bring massive changes to our city. And that's my hope, my prayer for our church. And not just our church. There are so many churches in this city that um, are just primed to be the catalyst for this. And I think God can do it. And I would love to see it happen. But it starts in our hearts. So as we as we transition to a time of, of remembrance, we have the communion table. We have the bread and the cup available. As we sing, you're welcome to come up and take the bread and the cup and take it back to your seat and eat it um, as you feel led when you're ready. And we do this, Jesus says, do it as a remembrance of me. And it's weird, I think, that sounds, that sounds like, like funeral language, 
right? And it sort of is because Jesus is going to die right after he gives us this command. He's, he's going to the cross and he's going to give up his life on our behalf and his body is represented by the bread and his shed blood is represented by the cup. But then I've always thought, even as a, as a young child, like, yeah, but why do I remember you? But see, the reality of the communion meal is the death that Jesus died only lasted for three days. Then he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and gave us his spirit. He says, it's better that I leave because then I can give you my spirit. And that's better for you. And you think like, are you sure, Jesus? I feel like it's better if you stay. And he goes, no, trust me. And this is what we also remember because the spirit inside us is our food, is our nourishment. As we eat the bread and the cup, we're reminded that God's spirit, Jesus, is alive in us right now. And he's the one that will. bring freedom and life and renewal to our own lives, to our church, and to our city. And so as we sing, um, take some time to just reflect on, on what God is doing in your heart. Where are you at here? Are you, are you squandering an opportunity? Are you standing outside kind of, well, this is how I've always related to Jesus. It's kind of my default relationship. If that's the case, just change it. Just ask him to forgive you for being lazy and to just empower you to be close to him because that's what he wants too. It's like we don't serve a God that's like, I don't know, I'll think about it. It's like, yes, he wants us to draw near to him. And so if you find yourself far away, just ask to come back. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for, God, the hard words of Jesus. The last several weeks have been hard words. They've been rebukes and warnings. And God, sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need to hear that we need to wake up. God, I pray that we would be people that are awake, that your spirit would be alive in us. God, where we see flaws, where we see distance, where we see sin, where there's darkness in our hearts, God, we would admit that and deal with that. God, make this environment a safe place where we can talk about the things that we're struggling through because we all are and work together to follow you. God, I pray that you would just renew our hearts, that you would renew our church and that you would renew our city by your powerful spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.
You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.